on today's episode, Glute Activation Myths with Rich Willie. Welcome to the Run Smarter Podcast, the podcast helping you overcome your current and future running injuries by educating and transforming you into a healthier, stronger, smarter runner. If you're like me, running is life, but more often than not, injuries disrupt this lifestyle. And once you are injured, you're looking for answers and met with bad advice and conflicting messages circulating the running community. The world shouldn't be like this. You deserve to run injury-free and have access to the right information. That's why I've made it my mission to bring clarity and control to every runner. My name is Brody Sharp. I am a physiotherapist, a former chronic injury sufferer, and your podcast host. I am excited that you have found this podcast and by default become the Run Smarter Scholar. So let's work together to overcome your injury, restore your confidence, and start spreading the right information back into your running community. So let's begin today's lesson. We were going to do the second Q&A this episode, but I have just finished chatting to Rich Willie and I thought it was too good and I'm getting impatient. So I'm putting it in this week and we'll do our second Q&A next week. <laughs> um, for those who aren't familiar, Rich Willie is a very well-renowned running researcher. He's a physical therapist, um, sports, he's done sports medicine, done a PhD, uh, very, very heavy in the research side of things and I'm just a, a super fan so if you're ready to hear me geek out and freak out as to um, <laughs> chatting with one of my heroes then I hope you strap yourself in for the next 60 minutes. I wanted to have the theme of the myth around glute activation, glutes falling asleep, um, glutes not firing, like those sorts of things and so Rich was more than happy to have a chat about that and we take a few other tangents, which you'll hear in a second. Uh, I kept it all in there. I wanted those tangents in there because it was just jam-packed full of value. He was very grateful for his time. I'm very grateful for, for him and his knowledge. And this has been one of the highlights of being a podcast host, getting to chat to people like Rich. So here we go. Rich, thank you very much for joining me on the Run Smarter podcast. Thanks a lot, Brody. It's really awesome to be here. I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to talk with everybody. So looking forward to yeah. the next next bit. I have been reading a ton of your research over the years. And so it's really nice to meet you face-to-face um, -face and then actually get to uh, have a chat with you. Um, before we get started, for those who aren't familiar with you, would you mind just introducing yourself and uh, how your academic career and passions are just like momentum into to where you see yourself today? Yeah, sure. Well, let's see, I'm a physical therapist. I've been a PT since uh, 1999. And uh, I worked as a full time clinician for eight years. Uh, and I worked in a couple different settings. Uh, so actually first started off in occupational health, uh, which is not really where I initially saw myself, but that was the first job I got. And it's actually been was a great job to have because I got to work with uh, injured workers and actually rely on my experience working with that population quite a bit when I work with runners because there are a lot of similarities there. Um, but, I, but I eventually was gravitated toward what I really wanted to be doing, which is more sports medicine and working with, with the running athlete. Um, in 2007, I went to the University of Delaware and started my PhD. I studied under Irene Davis at the University of Delaware and finished my PhD studies in, in 2011. Um, my PhD work was on patellofemoral pain and, um, and it did a lot of stuff looking at um, gait retraining and, and hip strengthening. Um, and so I did some work with that. I started to do some work with bone stress injuries as well. Um, and since then, uh, I've been a faculty member and I do uh, research and I work with two, uh, two different populations. I work with runners and I also work with tactical athletes. So that would be soldiers and wildland firefighters from a research standpoint. So, um, yeah, I, I teach in our physical therapy program. It's something I really love to do. And the research I, I do uh, is a lot of fun. I get a chance to work with a lot of other researchers who have similar interests and passions as me. And, um, 
yeah, it's a it's a really wonderful job. I couldn't I couldn't probably ask for a different uh, career. So I think one of the things that I, I think is really important to me, besides doing research and teaching, is that I still treat, uh, which is something I think is really important for researchers to do. So I, I still treat. Um, you know, a couple hours, several hours a week um, and do some consultation work as well with athletes. And um, I think that that's a really important part of being a clinical researcher is that you're actually, you know, doing clinical work. Yeah, absolutely. And is there any research in the pipeline at the moment, anything you're currently working on? Yeah, let's see here. Yeah, we've got a couple, we've been doing a lot of work in a couple different areas. One of them is return to run after ACL reconstruction. And um, that's an area that we've been focusing on for, for a couple of years. We have some, some work coming out um, shortly looking at that. We're looking at that in both athletes, but also tactical athletes as well. So we're looking at the challenges of going back to, um, uh, back to service after you've had an ACL reconstruction in the military and how that's really hard. So big challenge because you have to run and, and, and carry heavy loads. So we've been doing a lot of work in that area, um, doing some work with Achilles uh, tendinopathy as well, looking at um, how we can control loading, both from uh, adding load from it that's going to be therapeutic enough, but also how we can also reduce loads in the runner with some sort of Achilles tendon injury so we can help them make a you know, smoother transition back to running. So I, I would say that those are kind of the main areas that we're, that we're working on. Um, and, you know, I think the other thing, too, is we always have a little bit going on with bone stress injuries. We've got some additional projects uh, coming up very soon uh, looking at that as well. Excellent. Um, I wanted to pick your brain. Uh, it, one myth in particular, that being around glute activation, the relevance of glute strength. Um, you know, there's a lot of things about lazy glute or glutes falling asleep and like that, that sort of uh, terminology that's thrown around a lot. Um and so I want to pick your brain and I think it might be good to start with uh, what myths around this area have you heard that um, based on your research and expertise think is uh, predominantly untrue? Yeah, I, I would say that it is it is something that seems to be persistent as far as a belief that runners and also clinicians hold as well. Uh, and I think when I, when speaking about clinicians, I would extend that also to, to coaches, uh, I'd also extend it also to strength and conditioning, um, coaches as well, besides just running coaches. So, um, you know, I think, uh, and, and I will tell you too, that, uh, one of the things that I, that I've really have come to enjoy about what I do is that I get to take you know, beliefs that I might have as a, when I, I mean, I run and I used to treat runners, you know, almost all the time, and you know, as much as I don't do it as much uh, anymore. But one of the things I get a chance to do is to take some of those those preconceived notions that I have or other people might have, and then test them out in our in our laboratory. So, um, so yeah, so we've so we've done some work in this area, and and I, I think that for me, and I, and I think a lot of runners have this belief as well that you know we used to think that the the, the hip extensors or your glutes had a big role in running. Um, and they do, uh, there's certainly a, a very important muscle group, but I would say that if you were to rank the order of importance or the order of contributions to running, it's really your plantar flexors or your calf musculature that, that contributes the most. So if we, if we were to divide up the contributions from the hip, the knee and the foot and ankle to running, we see about half of the contribution to running is coming from your plantar flexors or from your, your, uh, your calf muscles. So your gastrocnemius and your soleus. Uh, your quads account for, I don't know, about 30%, maybe 35%. Um, and the last 15% or so come from your glutes. So we really see your hip extensors as being a, a relatively small contributor to the overall effort of running. Um, of course, this is looking at level ground. And that's during like endurance pace running. Um, now, if you start to run uphill, your hip contribution goes up quite a bit. Your knee contribution goes down. Um, when you run downhill, your hip contribution becomes very minimal. It's mostly a hip flexor um, activity, and that's because your hip flexors are acting eccentrically to try to control that limb as you're, as you're, coming, as you're passing over top of that leg. Um, plantar flexors are still really important going downhill uh, as well. So I think as, when you look at the overall contributions from your, your hips, to running, it's very, it's very minimal. Um, and again, I'm not saying that they're not important because they're a really important stabilizer of your trunk, important stabilizer of your, um, your hip joint as well. 
but it's just not this muscle that that seems to be so critical to running. So, yeah. So when you when you, if you pick up Runner's World or Triathlete Magazine, it's not so much anymore. But you'll you'll hear you'll see a lot of articles or certainly on on Instagram, you see a lot of things about like, okay, how can you activate your glutes before you go for a run, or how can you run a little bit differently to activate your glutes more. Um, really, if you if you run, you're going to be using your glutes. These are not muscles that you don't really have. You really can't say I'm going to use this muscle or I'm not. I mean, you certainly can can contract your glutes and squeeze them and you're going to be getting more force out of them. But just by, just by running, you're, you know, most, most runners when they run get about, you're getting about a, about a full body weight of muscle force out of their glute max, which sounds like a lot, but the soleus is responsible for about six to seven body weights of, of, of muscle force when we're running. So we're talking about a muscle that is one sixth of the contributor to running is, is the, this deep calf muscle your um, your soleus. So, yeah. So I, mean, I think that you know, and then along those lines, there are a lot of uh, drills that people will do to kind of activate their glutes before they run. Or if you go to the gym, you'll see a runners in there. They'll be spending a lot of time working on their on their glutes. Um, and I would say, really, probably the best thing to do is to take a step back and take a look at what running really is. And running is really basically just repetitive hopping. And then when you look at the main contributor to hopping, it's your, your Achilles tendon, your patellar tendon. And those structures store and release a tremendous amount of energy. And so if it were me and I were designing a strengthening program for a runner, I'd be spending a lot of time working on, you know, strengthening those, those, those tissues and the muscles that actually attach to them. Um, the glutes don't have a large tendon a large tendon attached to them and so because of that they don't store and release a lot of energy when we're running well when you're talking about the glutes not playing as big of a role in the running phase are you mainly talking about the propulsion phase of the running cycle or are you talking about the whole cycle in total yeah i'm really talking about the whole the whole cycle and when your glutes are most important is during weight acceptance so right mm-hmm. when your foot first hits the ground your your hip extensors are pretty active and when i'm talking about hip extensors i mean the glute max and also your hamstring musculature as well um so when when you look at them the some of your hamstring muscles actually have a larger moment arm acting on the hip than your your gluteus maximus does so the you know, the big difference is, of course, is your glute max is so much larger from a cross-sectional area standpoint. So, yeah, it's it, it definitely plays a big role there. And we, we often think, too, that our, our hip extensors have a big role when it comes to hip extension during that last part of, of our gait cycle. But that's really the plantar flexors. Again, your plantar flexors, when you look at the muscle modeling studies, when you look at what contributes to that propulsive force, it really comes down to your plantar flexors. You do get some load from your hip extensors, but most of it is coming from your plantar flexors. Okay. The other thing that I hear a lot is, you know, we're sitting all the time and that switches off our glutes. And therefore, when you go from sitting all the time to then running, we need to wake up our glutes or, you know, something along those lines. Um, what would you have to say about that particular narrative? Yeah. So that, that actually comes from, you know, I think there's some, I mean, cause that's certainly something I've heard a lot and, you know, you, you hear that, oh, you know, you sit a lot, your, your glutes fall asleep and you, your, your hip flexors get very tight. Um, this, there's some historical, uh, I guess, source for that. And that's, that it, it's this, 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 this crossover syndrome that, you know, was really, was very popular, I'd say 20, 25 years ago. And it, and it still is kind of hanging on a little bit. Um, yeah, I, I would say that when you, when, when you stand up, if, if you're, if you like, I mean, even just the, the process of standing up, you have to use your, your glute max to stand up. And to do that, you, you lean forward a little bit. And by doing that, you have this relatively large external moment arm acting on the hip and your hip extensors counter that and allow you to stand up. And then I think like once you, you know, if you have been sitting for a while, I mean, muscles don't, don't like fall asleep. I would say, I mean, I think that before you go for a run, I think most people will do some sort of a, of a warm up. And I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think for me, again, going back to what running really is, running is not this where we're, we're pushing forward where, or it's not this thing where we're falling forward. It's this activity where we're, we're basically bouncing. We're basically just doing repetitive hopping and we're starting to repetitively hop forward. And that's what running really ends up being. And so if anything, I would say, if you've been sitting for a while, the thing to probably do is some light plyometrics before you go for a run, like some jumping jacks, um, just double leg hops, if you will. Um, I think that's going to be one of the best warm up exercises that you can do because you're actually going to be warming up 
the structures that are going to be called on the most during running. And, um, you know, I think, I think if you look at the EMG activity, uh, which is looking at the, the, the overall neural drive to your hip extensors or whatever muscle that you end up testing, you know, I would say that, uh, I, I, I would, I mean, I'm not aware of anybody who's really looked at that, but I would say that there's, I, I would think that the neural drive is not any different if you've been sitting for a while versus if you have been doing exercises for a bit either. It certainly wouldn't be a very big difference. Hmm. I'm curious to get your thoughts, um, especially since you recommend a bit of plyometrics before running. Mm-hmm. Um, what I would usually recommend for some or like just advise is if you're doing a, a slow, easy run, you don't really need to do too much unless a particular routine feels good for you, like dynamic warm-ups, stretches, those sorts of things. But um, if if someone tries those things and feels indifferent when they don't do those things, um, maybe their warm-up would be their slow, easy run. Um, would you recommend that or do you think doing some warm-up plyometric exercises is still warranted? Yeah, I mean, I, I think for me, I would say uh, that – just the, I mean, just the, the act of running is basically just what we just talked about, which is some sort of repetitive hopping. So if you feel good going out, stepping out the door and just start of maybe start walking for a little bit and then ease into a jog, I, I think that's probably the best warm up, really, you know, and I think if you're, if you don't have the ability to do that, I mean, I live in Montana, it's pretty cold right now here. And um, I think for me to go out and walk for a little bit and, then start easing into a jog uh, sounds sounds uncomfortable with how cold it is at this time of year. It's, it's you know it's, it's January and certainly not very warm. So for me, like this morning when I ran, I I was in my my house and I was doing I was doing some hopping activities before I went outside. So I was I was good and warmed up, so I could step outside and start running at a, at a decent pace. I, I didn't get too cold, but I mean, but other than that, I mean, I think I think it's I think what you described makes a lot of sense, and I, and I, I certainly. I, you know, I don't think you can really argue against that. Um, and the flip side of that though, too, is that, you know, if you're someone who likes to, likes to stretch before you run, um, I, I think that's great. I, I think that sometimes you'll, you'll hear that, oh, you shouldn't stretch before a run because you stretch out your, these, your, your, your tendons and their ability to store and release energy decreases. But that doesn't seem to really be the case unless you're doing really, really long, long stretches, several minutes in length. So I don't know. And, and now with that said, though, is this is that if you stretch before you run, it doesn't seem to reduce your risk of having a running related injury. Um, if you do stretching during during the week, if you say like on Mondays, I'm going to do a lot of stretching that that also doesn't seem to reduce your risk of having a running related injury, but it also doesn't increase your risk either. Um, and so I think that going I think flipping back to what, what you, you know, your earlier point is the runner should do whatever they want to do is like, if that's something that feels good for them, I don't think that they should get too stuck into doing something that is, that, that, that has been overly, that has been prescribed to them. If it doesn't feel like it's making a big, a big difference um, for them. I know when I was younger, I, I certainly would start runs out a little bit differently than, than I do now that I'm 49. I kind of ease into runs a little bit more and take a little bit more time to get going. But um, other than that, I think I, I, my, my overall routine is relatively the same. Yeah, I'm glad we're on the same page there because I I uh, recommend the exact same thing. Try a whole bunch of different routines. You can try some stretches static and you can also try some dynamic or a mixture of both. Do it for two minutes, do it for five minutes, do none at all and just like test it out yourself and see how you feel when you go for a run um, and then see what's the best for your slow, easy run, see what's mm-hmm. the best for your sort of tempo, sort of faster runs or hill repeats. You might need to focus more on a bit more of a warm up and that sort of thing. But like you said, you then reassess, you know, every couple of years, tr- change up that routine and see if that is now maybe doing more mobility work when you do get into your fifth or sixth decade of running, you know, maybe that's starting to tilt more in your favor, but does come with a lot of trial and error. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I mean, I think like if you, if you, if you look at, or if you talk to elite runners, uh, or if you go to like a big track meet and you, you're watching everybody warm up, you'll see everybody's kind of doing their own, their own thing. And there's a lot of variation yeah. even at that level. So, um, you know, I, I don't know. I think, I think the, the most important thing is that runners figure out what's going to work the best for them. I think that easing into a run makes a lot of, makes a lot of sense for, for, you know, for many reasons. Um, 
and I, I think walking and then easing into into a run. I think if I were to kind of structure the, like the best warm up, at least for a good starting place, would be exactly what we talked about. Was just doing like a nice easy walk and then easing into a run mm-hmm. and then going from there. So, um, yeah, I think that sounds I think that sounds good. So I would I would certainly agree with everything you're saying. Back to the glutes, you mentioned that okay, this has been a particular like persistent narrative that's uh we've come across uh, across like health professionals coaches runners um strength and conditioning where do you think it all originated from if there's no particular premise yeah it's that's a great question i so i so i think that it it came about i I could be wrong but um in the in the mid to late 90s there started to become this awareness of how important your hip uh, abductors and hip external rotators are to controlling hip adduction and hip internal rotation. So that this, this knee valgus type mechanic, and it was certainly something that I was taught and learned. And, and so, and then there was this idea that, you know, if, if, if people have patellofemoral pain, there's some early biomechanical studies that showed that people that had patellofemoral pain or iliotibial band pain, that their knees tended to drift in a little bit. Um, and so we immediately started, and then also, lo and behold, you go and like look at 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 hip strength and people who have patellofemoral pain or iliotibial band pain, and and lo and behold, their their hip strength is a little bit less. They tend to have less 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 strength. And so there was this idea. Well, okay, so if the hip controls hip adduction and hip interrotation, and we see that runners who have patellofemoral pain or iliotibial band pain, their knee tends to drift medially. Um, and they're also testing weaker. That means that the reason why they're getting patellofemoral pain or iliotibial band pain must be because their hips are not strong enough and we need to be doing more strengthening of the hips. Either that or they're not using their hips to the same degree. So, um, so that was the idea. And so this is, I think the way physical therapy was for probably 15, 15 years or so. And there's been, you know, some really great, I would say cross-sectional studies, um, and the, that would kind of reinforce that whole idea. But I think that this gets to some of the shortcomings of doing, looking at cross-sectional studies, which is basically looking at just a, a moment in time, looking at people who have pain and looking at different characteristics that they might have, in this case, hip strength or hip weakness, um, and then also certain running biomechanics. But then people start doing these really large uh, biomechanical studies. And I, what I mean by large are several hundred people. And then in those studies, they started looking at a lot of different factors, like how much, how many miles people were running per week, um, how strong their, their, their uh, hip abductors were, and so forth. Um, and then they would follow them over time to see who would develop patellofemoral pain or iliotibial band pain or what have you. And one of the things that was really interesting was that um, hip weakness did not predispose people to knee injuries. And I think that that's a really important finding that still seems to be escaping, I think, like, um, I guess, collective knowledge when it comes to running-related injuries is that hip strength does not seem to predispose people to either hip injuries. It also doesn't seem to predispose people to knee injuries either. Um, But one of the things that's really interesting about that is that once you develop knee pain, suddenly you lose hip strength. And so there, what a lot of people are starting to think now is that, uh, what I mean by people, I mean scientists who are looking at this, is that they're, they're seeing that when you have knee pain, it, t- it tends to inhibit your, your hip muscles proximally. And so you tend to lose some, some ability to generate force um, from your gluteus maximus and gluteus medius when you're having knee pain. And lo and behold, once your knee pain goes away, that hip strength tends to come back. And so people have even looked at this a little bit like more creatively and they've um, experimentally induced knee pain by injecting hypertonic saline, which is this very salty solution that you put into your, your infrapatellar fat pad. And that results in a, a tremendous amount of knee pain that actually mimics patellofemoral pain very closely. And one of the things that you see that's really interesting is that once you do that, of course, it goes away after about an hour, um, the, the people immediately lose uh, hip strength. Um, when it's, so if you test them before you do that injection, then immediately after they, they lose about 20, 25% of their ability to generate force from their, their hip abductors and hip extensors. And then once that pain goes away, lo and behold, their hip strength comes back. Um, and then the, the other side of that too, is that then at the same time during all this people then, you know, like, you know, particularly in the military, 
as I'm sure you can imagine that knee injuries are, are very prevalent in the military, they started doing a lot of injury prevention type studies where they would do um, hip strengthening uh, because they were getting a lot of knee injuries. And so we're going to put people through these big hip strengthening programs and um, strengthening your hips did not seem to reduce injuries in the military. And of course, they're doing a lot of running and walking with, with heavy loads and so forth. So it didn't seem that the strengthening your hips seemed, did not seem to prevent injuries. It seems that um, being weak does not predispose someone to having some sort of knee injury. But it seems like once you have knee pain, that it does seem to make your your hips weaker. I know, and, and weaker is probably not the best term. I would say less able to produce force because once that pain goes away, that ability to produce force comes back. And so I, I would say though that um, that doesn't necessarily mean that that doing a lot of hip strengthening is not important during rehab, and it's something that we really need to make sure that we're doing. Um, but I would say that um, is part of an overall overall kind of global loading strategy to try to get someone to be confident and accepting more load through their lower limb um, and also train their nervous system. That's okay to be tolerating more load through their lower limb as well. Yeah. I can definitely see if someone is injured, whether it's consciously or unconsciously, they're a bit more apprehensive to produce in a max. Just quickly chiming in here to let you scholars know, I have just updated my five day injury prevention challenge. This is one email per day for five days, learning new concepts and diving into the science on how you can reduce your risk of injury. The sign up link is in the show notes. So fill in your details and I'll be waiting for you in email number one tomorrow. A maximal amount of force on an injured leg, no matter if it's away from the injured site, like if they tell, if they have a sore knee and they have to like externally rotate their hips or something in a, um, a strength test, I could definitely see the brain being like, okay, let's, you know, not go full gas here. Let's try and protect this, this whole limb because we're injured. Um, I could definitely see that being at least one component of the reason why you can't produce that max amount of force, um, tends to make a, a lot of sense. Yeah. And, and, and so, you know, I think, you know, for me, and I, it wasn't really how I thought about it initially, and it's not really until the last, last couple of years where I started thinking more and more along those lines. Um, but I mean, it's been, you know, it's been a gradual process for me. And I think, um, so it, it, I don't want to sit here and say, oh, you know, I, I've had all the answers all along. It's that, you know, I've been kind of along the same kind of journey as everybody else from a, from a clinical standpoint. Um, you know, and back when I went for my, my uh, PhD, the very first study that I did was we, we took a lot of runners who, who, were, who were uninjured and they had this running mechanic where their knee would drift inward. So this, this knee valgus. And um, we did a randomized control trial and um, we put them through six weeks of, you know, I, I would say pretty focused hip strengthening exercises, a progressive program where each week it progressed in load. They were strength training three times per week and we were doing Everything was based off like ACSM guidelines for building strength. Um, so we had all these female runners. We looked at the running, bi running biomechanics before and after this hip strengthening program. Our control arm of the study, those runners, uh, they just continued to run. They didn't do any sort of hip strengthening whatsoever. And what we found was that uh, at the end of the six weeks, our, our hip strength training group, they increased their, their hip strength by about 25%. So they had... 25% gains in their hip abduction uh, torque ability and also 25% in their hip external rotation torque ability. So our, our, our hip strengthening program was very successful at, at changing hip strength. But then we looked at their running biomechanics and we found absolutely no change in their running biomechanics whatsoever. So they did not change how much hip adduction they went into, did not change how much, how much hip internal rotation they were going into either. And so I, I think that that tells us a lot about there isn't necessarily this, this, this big cause and effect there that when we see someone moving a certain way that we have to, you know, in order to fix that, you have to strengthen the muscles that are attached or that control those motions because it, it's much more of a motor control issue than it is an actual strength issue. I think for, for most, mm. for most of these runners. It's very important to know because narrative is very important when it comes to injury and I can totally see someone having hip pain or knee pain and they see a therapist and they say, oh, your glutes are weak. Let's strengthen you up because your knee's caving in while you run. Let's strengthen up your hip so that uh, you don't have that knee caving in. And then you do all this hip strengthening and you get better, but, and you get better because you've built up strength. Like the capacity of the hips is like you say, can increase by 25% with a particular program. And so you feel better, 
But then you're going away after that experience with this narrative of my glutes were weak and it's causing my need to collapse in. Um, and then people get and develop um, that narrative a bit further by saying, I need to make sure I activate my glutes. I need to make sure that, you know, I can feel my glutes when I do my strength exercises or I need to engage my glutes when I run. Um, otherwise, my knee's going to collapse in. I'm going to start getting this pain. And that's, it's not only untrue it's it creates a lot of anxiety and a lot of fear for a lot of runners to you know have that narrative only and it's very popular i've heard it tons of times with different runners that, that come to me um so it's very important what we tell our runners and like the how you sort of explain what's happening because you know your research would prove that a lot of that is untrue yeah, I, I think you're 100% right. And what you described is something I, I hear from runners all the time. The runners who end up seeing me a lot of times have been runners who have seen other clinicians um, and have not had the outcome that they were looking for. And when they come in, a lot of times they have these sorts of narratives, you know, in their head. And it's very, and, and I think as a clinician for me, I, I they, they, these these uh, patients have kind of really clung to this, this narrative. And it's, it's very, I, I think that's one of the hardest things that, that I do certainly. And I'm guessing you're the same is that like when you're, when you're working with a patient that has a very kind of uh, um, fearful view of, 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 of either their structure or how they move is teaching them that, that it's okay to move in certain, in certain manners and, and, and directions. And um, that load is actually a very good thing. And load is going to be your ticket out of this, this injury, um, but there's not necessarily something wrong with you. And so, and, you know, we, we kind of, you know, kind of, I touched on structure too. And that's another one that we have to really talk a lot about when it comes to knee injuries is that, you know, a lot of times people think that like, if they have, um, wider hips, like wider pelvic structure, that that tends to contribute to how much their knees dive in. And, and that's been looked at in, in several different studies where they've looked at the acetabular, uh, the interacetabular distance. So that, that distance between one hip socket and the other, and they've correlated that against how much your your knees dive in, and there doesn't seem to be any relationship there whatsoever. And there have been uh, a handful of studies that have, that have done that that have been done in a, in a very rigorous manner. Uh, and uh, the same thing also with just looking at hip strength too, just correlating hip strength to the amount that amount of knee valgus you go into. Um, the highest R values or correlations. Um, uh, suggests that hip strength contributes only about um, eight to ten percent of the total variance and how much your how much knee valgus you go into. So that means that there's ninety percent other variance that's hanging out there that's not being explained by how much hip strength you have. Um, and again, it probably comes down to motor control. And um, so there are lots of different ways that you know you that if you have a runner who is doing that, that you you can work on their knees not diving in quite as much, but it might not even be coming from the hips at all. Because if you've ever watched someone who's had, who's had a knee injury for like, for instance, like a, like an ACL reconstruction or has a very, and of course those, those individuals often tend to be very fearful of loading their knee as well. Um, or someone has patellofemoral pain, they're often going to be very resistant to, or very hesitant to bend their knee. So if they're going down steps, for instance, you'll, you'll see them kind of not really want to flex that knee as much, but they still have to get that foot down to the next step or down to the ground. And so in order to do that, a lot of times they'll drop their hip or drop their pelvis down into more pelvic drop, or they'll let that knee kind of dive in by, and by doing that, they're actually shortening the limb and they're, they're compensating for either a painful knee or, or fear of bending that knee. Um, and so that's one of the things that we see a lot with the athletes that we're working with that are recovering from ACL reconstruction when we're looking at their running biomechanics is that they, these individuals do tend to have more hip adduction when they're running, but it's because they're not flexing their knee enough when they're running. And they have to lower that mass somehow. And so they're, they're you know, of course it would be, if you, if you look at them, if you just do like a gait analysis, with like if you're doing like a standard video analysis that someone might get in a clinic, you'd be like, well, look how much that person's hip is moving and they're, when they're running. And so I need to do lots and lots of hip strengthening. But the real issue is down at the knee. They're not able to accept as much weight through the knee either because they're being very fearful or they just don't have the, the amount of quad strength or capacity down there that they need to to be accepting load through, that, through, through their knee when they're running. Hmm. Yeah. So motor, motor control would be a, a um, very significant factor. I think also just like people's habits of running 
And one of them being like your step width, like we know some runners have this crossover step width, which is just habitual. It's just how they've been running and they don't really think about it. They don't really do too much about, but that would obviously cause a lot of um, uh, a knee sort of collapsing or coming more towards the midline. And that's not strength. That's just habit. And I, I sort of went on a rant. I can't remember if I was on a previous podcast episode or not, but when people say, oh, your knee's collapsing in, do, you know, six to 10 weeks of strengthening to correct that. And like you say, that doesn't, that doesn't work. You do all this hip strength and get back on a treadmill, you run exactly the same. But what you can do is increase your cadence if it's a little bit lower than optimal or just consciously widen your step width if you do so, if you think it's a good rationale to do that. And instantly, instantaneous, you have that change in mechanics and you haven't gone through that 10 weeks of strengthening. It's um, why maybe some gait retraining might be suitable for certain people. Um, have you done much work on like step width or like widening step width if someone does have a crossover pattern and is like constantly injured with ITB issues or knee issues and that sort of thing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would say that that was one of the key or one of the, I would say one of the top three, uh, I think biomechanical co uh, contributors that we see to like iliotibial band pain, for instance. And also uh, to, when, when you do that and you, and you can, you can even see how this feels if you, if you stand and you kind of cross your legs over and then you do a squat, like when you go down, you'll feel a lot more pressure on your fourth and fifth metatarsals. Um, you'll, when, when you do that, your knees will want to kind of bow out and that's, what puts a lot of extra strain on your, on your iliotibial band. Um, and it also creates a, like a twisting type force on your, uh, on your tibia. And, um, so when you're doing that, like one of the reasons why, why people do that is what you just described is that they actually, a lot of runners take too long of a stride. And one of the easiest and quickest ways to fix that is to have them run with a slightly higher running cadence. And, and when you do that, their step width automatically will increase. You don't need really big increases in cadence to see that. You only need a 5 to 10% increase in running cadence to see a, a widening of the, of the step width. Um, and uh, Catherine Boyer and Tim Derrick published a really nice paper in American Journal of Sports Medicine that, that were, they were looking at that. And they, and they, they correlated the step length. So how big of a step someone is taking when they're running at a, at a given running speed. So everybody was running the same speed. The people that tended to take longer steps and they, they scaled it to the person's leg length. So it was normalized to leg length. Um, they found that the longer your step length was, the, the greater likelihood you, you were to crossing over or having this very narrow step width. Um, mm. And they also see that biomechanic um, with forefoot strikers as well too, because they tend to want to make contact on the outside part of their foot. And in order to do that, they will often kind of sweep their feet across the front of their body a little bit um, too. And so, yeah, just like you said, the easiest way to address that is by asking runners to increase their their running cadence or, or step rate or whatever you want to call it by, you know, five to 10%, uh, five, five to 10%. Um, we end up using around seven and a half percent because we find that 5% seems to, you know, it seems to work for some runners, but not everybody. 10%, that's getting pretty, pretty high. And I think a lot of runners tend to have a hard time getting that high with their running cadence. We know that once you start getting above, up above 10% of an increase in your running cadence, the metabolic cost of running goes up and it becomes too hard to do. Um, so that seven and a half percent is kind of nice, kind of nice in the middle. Um, and we use, we use, uh, we use Garmin running watches or any sort of GPS watch. Almost any watch will, will, will give you feedback on your running cadence, um, nowadays. Um, but that would, that would be one of the main things that we do. We have also done it too, where we've actually had runners work on running with a wider base. Um, and so let's say you have a runner that increasing their running cadence doesn't seem to help with that. Um, one of the things we might do is we might have, we might take them down to a track and have them straddle two lanes. So, and that'll help them kind of learn to run with a slightly wider base. Um, and again, you don't need like big changes. What we found, we have a, we, we have a paper uh, out, out shortly where we were looking at how much of a change we needed to really have um, as from a stepwise standpoint to reduce tibial bone stress. And it really only ended up being about two and a half centimeters of a, of a wider base. It, 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 these are very, very small changes. And same thing with cadence. When you, if you increase your running cadence by five to seven and a half percent, it's not really a big change. You can barely tell if you're just visually watching someone. 
Um, this idea that we need to, you know, lean our trunks forward or you know, convert ourselves to a four foot strike or make these big, massive kinematic changes in the way we're running because we're quote unquote, not running right. Um, I, I think those are introducing more problems than they're actually fixing. I'm glad to talk about that because um, if I do see someone who has a narrow or crossover step width, like there needs to be justification to change it um, to start with. But, um, you know, I usually start with increasing their cadence and I say to them, if you increase your step rate, you simply don't have enough time to cross over. You know, your, your body just doesn't have that enough time to do that. So it will place it a bit more underneath the body. But if they have a high cadence and it's still crossing over, then I like to widen to say just consciously try and step wider but almost everyone that i do that they overdo it they step too wide and they start like you know moving side to side in a very like inefficient manner and i'm glad that you said that because i say it needs to be like an inch just move it by an inch and um see how you feel and um so i'm glad you're doing work on that i actually talked to chris brammer a researcher in the uk about um his research on um pathological sort of um biomechanical issues and uh, I asked him about step width and he doesn't really, well, that was about two years ago, but he said at that time he didn't really do much work with step width. So um, I'm glad there's, uh, I have seen the research on ITB strain and um, how it correlates with step width and that sort of stuff. So I'm glad it's being worked on. Yeah. But you know, before you know, I get, oh, oh sorry, sorry, I was just going to just add on that. Like Chris's study and, and, you know, I know, I know Chris relatively well, like his, that, his paper that was published in AGSM and one of the things that he had, it, that he found in there was this, this pathological gate pattern which is this excess of of hip or contralateral pelvic drop and and because you you're, you see that with a lot of running related injuries and as going back to what i said just a couple minutes ago well that's because a lot of running related injuries are indeed knee injuries and they're not wanting to accept load through the knee and so they end up dropping their pelvis quite a bit more so i i, I do i i think that's a good like i don't know maybe you could call it like a biomarker that there's an injury, that the runner has an injury, I would say that I, I would be careful because, again, that's a cross-sectional study. I would be careful saying, hey, this is the reason why people get running-related injuries. Mm, yeah, it's trying to get a snapshot in time and trying to um, paste a, a kind of conclusion because if you see um, a hip drop and very associated with someone being classified as injured, um, some people might draw a conclusion, oh, it's hip weakness and that's causing that hip drop and there's that hip weakness is then maybe causing that injury. But like you say, if you, um, that's just taking a snapshot in time. But if you have a look at a whole bunch of healthy runners, hip strength, and then see if they get injured in the future, there's no correlation between hip strength and injuries. So um, very good to clear those things up. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I think like one of the, for me, one of the, I would say one of the most important studies for me in the last five years was a paper that came out of, uh, out of North Carolina that um, Steve Messier's group did. And, and it, was a, it was a large study. I think they had 500 and some runners in their study. Um, and this also was published in American Journal of Sports Medicine. And they, they did a biomechanical uh, analysis of these runners. And then they followed them for, I think, a full year. Uh, and they had the full spectrum of, of ages and everything like that. And they were trying to identify. And they had, uh, it was a mixed sex cohort as well. So it was, and it was, and they, they had them, they, um, they checked in with the runners on a, on a very regular basis. And they, they only found, uh, I think of the 20 some biomechanical variables that they found, the only one that they found that uh, seemed to relate to risk of getting a running related injury was increase in knee stiffness. Hip adduction didn't contribute to a risk of running-related injury. Higher impact forces didn't relate to uh, a higher risk of running-related injury. But one of the things that was really, really interesting, the, the strongest finding that they had was an increased in perceived stress uh, and a perfectionism-type uh, personality trait. That was the number one contributor or predictor that someone was going to get injured is if they were very, if they were reported having a high, relate, high rate of, of life stress and they were tended to view themselves as perfectionist. Um, th those are the people that ended up getting injured the most. Not There was no, and strength didn't seem to make that much difference um, either. On, on, and I think they looked at hip strength and also quad strength as well. Yeah. And there's been a ton of podcast episodes I've done in the past linking stress to injury and oh, perfectionism and that sort of stuff. So yeah, I'm glad that that sort of comes full circle. I'm going to ask this patron question before we move on. Cause I think, well, first of all, we've already answered it and um, well, we may have already answered it, but it's um, I'm liking the direction that this is coming into, but have to answer some of these questions. Uh, Craig, a patron here asks, 
Um, I've seen exercises such as donkey kicks, glute bridges, and clamshells, and um, he's done them before. And he's asking, does it help prevent injuries? Is there any benefit in doing them after a run as well? So I guess these exercises are pretty common. I see a lot of people doing clamshells, um, maybe trying to wake up their glutes and those sorts of things. Where are we in terms of preventing injury? And where are we in terms of maybe doing them after a run to be of benefit? Yeah, yeah I think those are, I would definitely agree. I think those are some of the running, the injury or the the types of extras that you see runners will do a lot. Um, you know, that when you look at the amount of load that the person is experiencing when they're doing like a donkey kick or like a, a clamshell or type stuff, something like that, the overall load is, 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 is pretty low. Um, and so they're talking about basically almost doing like body weight or even less type exercise. So strengthening is, is one of the most important things that we can do for our musculoskeletal health. It improves our tendon stiffness. It improves our bone density. Um, it, it helps our metabolic health as well. Um, and we also know that um, strengthening will improve our running economy. The evidence on that is, I, I would say, is, is getting to be pretty strong uh, and also improves our running performance. And so what I would say that those extras, thinking about strengthening your, your hips, I think let's not leave out the other muscles, but I would get into the gym and do some work on doing some squats, some Romanian deadlifts. Um, I really love Bulgarian split squats. I think that's one of the best exercises that are, that's out there and, and don't be shy about throwing on some load. So I would say right on, you know, doing the hip strengthening is a great idea, but I would say, let's get in there and do some other exercises, and also let's do some calf, some heavy calf raises as well, or, or heel raises at the same time. Yeah. We're definitely on the same wavelength there. I think um, the squats, the deadlifts are great. Uh, the When it comes to like glute strength, particularly like the glute medius, um, you probably need to be on like a single leg, which is why your Bulgarian split squats, which for those who aren't familiar, it's like a lunge, but your back leg is elevated on like a bench or a chair or something. Um that is kind of a really nice combination of it being kind of single leg, but able to provide heavy load. Like you can, you know, have a, um, a barbell or a, a weighted vest or dumbbells hold on to those because I find if someone does single leg squats, very, very tough to add load to that, to ha- hold on to dumbbells because you're off balance. You know, it's, it's really, really tricky. So I think like a lunge or a a weighted step up or a Bulgarian split squat, that perfect combination of having enough stability that you can really load them up, Mm -hmm. but it's still being single leg that you're stimulating the glutes, the glute medius and that particular, um, you know, muscle, um, group. Yeah. I think when you're, when you're looking at certain populations, strengthening the glutes is, is really important, particularly your gluteus medius. And that would be, when, when, when you look at tendon related injuries, gluteal tendinopathy is, is a really common injury, particularly when you get into a male, like masters runners, particularly female masters runners. And I, I think for them, I would say that that's going to be a really important muscle group to, to hit. And I, and I do think that doing some exercises that we talked about would, would be great um, additions. I think doing a cable column like this just straight standing and doing some isolated hip abduct or hip yeah, hip abduction work, I think it'd be really good. That's a great, that's a great option. I'm, I'm just throwing out some other options um, for, for listeners to try out, but also doing some side planks um, where they're, um, you know, uh, progressively getting themselves or making sure that they're getting their hips forward over top. So they're kind of in a nice straight line. I think is also a really great um, glute medius um, strengthening exercise as well. Hmm. What would you say for those very, again, a very common um, question or fears that people come to me with is they do their glute exercises and they can only feel activation on one side. Hmm. It's like, okay, I do my glute bridge, single leg. um, I get a lot of fatigue in one side and then I do the other side. I just can't feel my glutes activating. So if you have that discrepancy, um, how how relevant is that and uh, how much should we focus on it? Yeah, that's a great question. I think like like AC, like running is is looks like a very symmetrical activity, and um, so we would think that we would want to we would have very symmetrical strength um, as well. And and so w- when you look at a running biomechanic standpoints, people have have, have they've, they've looked at this, looked at biomechanical asymmetries to see if they can predict uh, a running related injury, and that that doesn't seem to really pan out super well as far as it doesn't seem to really predict who's going to get injured when you look at at, at strength deficits um there 
I, I don't know if I don't know if that's really been looked at a lot. We certainly see it when someone's trying to recover from a post-operative procedure, like post-operatively, like a, like after ACL reconstruction. It does seem that that asymmetry does seem to matter. When you're doing the exercises, if you're not feeling the extra, if you're feeling the exercise more on one side than the other, um, yeah, you might have some you might have some some side to side strength deficits, and and you're probably noticing that when you're doing the exercise with how many like how many plates you have on your weight machine. Um, why is that? that? That's a that's a that's a hard it's a hard answer to, uh, it's a hard, hard question to answer. I don't, I don't really know. I don't really know why that is. Um, you know, it may be that there's a, there's a past injury there. Um, you, you know, I, for, and I, I know I would put myself in that category. So I, I had, um, I had a hip arthroscopy, uh, about a decade ago and man, to this day, my, um, it seems to really inhibit my, my left quadricep, quite a bit. So I always have to do a little extra work on my left quadricep. We're doing some knee extensions and also my, my left, um, uh, hip flexor as well. I always have to do some extra strength. And I, I feel that exercise, uh, I, I start getting fatigued way earlier than I do on my, on my opposite limb. Um, and so there might be just a past injury that's there that may be causing some, some inhibition. Um, it, yeah, it's, it's really, it's really hard to, it's really hard to say exactly why. Okay. So, Probably as a takeaway, if there is a fatigue pattern deficit or a strength de- deficit, it's probably, uh, you know, relevant enough to focus on it and start doing some individual work, mm-hmm. uh, but probably not too important in translation to your running if your mechanics aren't that affected. Because I, I think if someone really believes one glute's firing more than the other, and then they start running, you'd expect like some limping or you'd expect some sort of like obvious um, biomechanical changes. But if they're not producing that, then maybe it's not as much of an issue when it comes to the running side of things. Just make sure your, your training loads are in check. Yeah, I, yeah, I think so. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, I, I think that, uh, I mean, you know, a good way to think about it is if you if you were using your max strength and, and I'm, and again, I'm a huge proponent of doing strengthening with runners. It's one of the things that I, I probably advocate the most. Um, but at the same time, if you used your max strength, every step you took, you, you would, you'd wear out, you'd get tired pretty quickly. You know what I mean? And so the, the muscle dynamics are much different when we run as well. And so when you're lifting, you're, you're getting this muscle that is shortening and lengthening, uh, and it's doing, and you can watch that muscle move. So like you can, when you're doing some sort of strength training exercise, but when you, when you look at running, running is really interesting in that the, the muscle, the muscular tendinal, uh, tendinous dynamics are much different. The muscle almost stays isometric and the, uh, your, your Achilles tendon is stretching and then that's recoiling back and it's snapping back and that's that energy storage and release. And so, um, so I have this really great video that I have where I have someone doing a calf raise and the person's doing the calf raise and you can see their, their, their gastrocnemia is moving up and down and as they're doing this calf raise. And then I have the exact same person hopping in place, but that gastrocnemius is not moving at all, but you can see the tendon really stretching there quite a bit. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, running is this, this is basically this big hopping activity. And so you know, the most important thing when we do strength training, and, and this is probably the reason why why strength training is so effective when it comes to improving uh, our bone health and our tendon health is that it's not so much the, it's not so much being strong that's important. It's the act of getting strong. And, and so when you go into the gym and you do a lot of progressive loading, you're not just loading that muscle, you're loading that, that tendon that, that is attached to it. You're loading that bone that is attached to it. And so a good rule of thumb is that the stronger a muscle is, the stronger the underlying bone is going to be and the stronger that attached tendon is going to be as well. And, and that's typically where we get injured as runners. We tend to get injured in our tendons. We tend to get injured in our bones from bone stress injuries or medial tibial stress syndrome. And so if you're going into the gym, uh, even if you feel like you're strong in a certain area, still do the strengthening exercises because all the, the structures that are attached to that muscle are going to get a very nice, very important benefit from doing that, that we just don't see with running. Running alone does not seem to be adequate enough to improve tissue tolerance um, in our tendons and our bones to the point where you've got this, this extra kind of safety margin that can uh, potentially um, help us, you know, as far as keeping a healthy musculoskeletal system and uh, also keeping our, our, our bone and tendon health where it needs to be. And certainly when it comes to recovering from injuries, um, also. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember the exact study, but I looked at one looking at tendon synthesis and, um, 
the response comparison from like doing a really heavy, I think they did a knee extension at like 85%, one RM and compare that to running. And you had to get to like 35 Ks of running to meet the same amount of tendon synthesis than just doing, you know, three sets of 10 for that max out effort. And so it goes to show that that stimulus is just so different when it comes to the slow, heavy load and you can get so much stronger and so much more efficient way of doing so rather than just trying to rely on your running volumes to get stronger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are the yeah the paper you're talking about is a paper from Magnuson. It was published in in, in 2010, and and it shows that really well. It shows that what happens is that you you the the, um, the tendon ends up getting saturated um, with running, and it doesn't seem to get. It, it, it just seems like it takes so much more running um, to get the same benefit in that tendon as it would just going into the gym and doing some, some heavy strength training with it. So, yeah, mm-hmm. we, we, we see the exact same thing with, uh, with bone, um, but bone, bone does a little bit better with like faster, more rapid loading. So more like, like hopping. So plyometrics seem to cause the type of twisting and bending of bone that the bone is going to respond the best to, but bone, bone behaves in the very same way in that you could do all the running in the world that you want, but all you're going to have are the bones of a runner. But what you really want to have are the bones of like, of a gymnast who's running. And that's one of the things that we see is that people who, who, who did a lot of gymnastics or a lot of ball type sports between the ages of, of nine and 12 or nine and 13, that that ends up giving people this kind of lifelong benefit of reducing their risk of developing a bone stress injury. And we, we also see that in adults too, that if they do some hopping activities that will, it will improve their, their overall bone health. And, and hopefully that'll reduce their risk of developing a bone stress injury. One thing I heard you on another podcast, which I found very interesting, was the fact that it's not necessarily the ground reaction force that stimulates a lot of bone tissue to grow. It's more the the tendons pulling on the bone. And you use the example of um, running downhill and getting a lot of that ground reaction force. It probably isn't that the stimulus we're after compared to running uphill, where the muscles tugging on the bone a lot more and creating that that stimulus. Um, Am I right with saying that or did I interpret that? No, you're, you're absolutely correct. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, yeah, it's really, it's really funny. We used to think that the, the impacts were really important and, and they certainly are, but what's more important is the muscle that gets you off the ground up in the air that then when you land, what's going to attenuate that load is not the bone, but the muscle itself. So, so much so that if you cue someone who to land stiff, versus you cue them to land very soft, the person who's going to get more bone load is going to be the person who is landing softer. And the reason for that is that the muscle is attenuating that impact. So when you look at gymnasts, when gymnasts are doing their, their tumbling and stuff like that, they tend to land very, very stiff. Um, and when they're doing that, uh, their, their bone forces are certainly high, but if they were to land very soft and, and, and that's going to give you the bigger bone forces or bone uh, bone stress. And it's because the muscle that the muscle is attenuating that load and that, that muscle is attached to the bone. And so it, it kind of goes back to some of the other things. Like, you know, if you think about like where we were a decade ago with like born to run and, and, and everything, like everybody's really worried about impact forces. And when you're running off, you know, if you're, if you're, if you've had really high impact forces, this kind of increase your risk of developing a bone stress injury. And so we started cueing everybody to run softer and then and then really what happened there is that when you're doing that, you're actually, you're actually increasing their overall uh, bone stress. And so when you look at runners who, um, who, were, who were a rear foot striker, a lot of runners at that time, would they, they were like, oh, they read Born to Run or whatever, and then they decided to become a forefoot striker. And so, of course, what's attenuating that load are your plantar flexors, your calf muscles. And, and lo and behold, when you look at the bone stress studies, when you're looking at people that, that convert to a forefoot strike pattern, it actually increases their bone stress in their tibia, uh, even though they're landing very soft and, and, and stuff. And so that just goes to show you how important muscle is. And when you look at your ground reaction forces when you're running, you know, most of us are around two and a half times our body weight when we hit the ground. So that's your, that's the, that's the ground, you're hitting the ground and the ground is reacting and pushing back up against you. But when you look at tibial bone force, when you run, it's about nine body weights. So if you subtract out the two and a half times of your body weight of that vertical ground reaction force, you, you still have seven and a half body weights that are, that's still out there. And, and that, that contributor is coming from your muscles and, and uh, in particular, your soleus, and your gastrocnemius. And, and that's why, for instance, if you ever are treating someone who has um, 
an anterior tibial cortex bone stress injury. So this is a very risky bone stress injury that's on the front of the tibia. Um, it's very hard to manage it. And every time that the, your plantar flexors, your calves contract, what it will do is it'll, it'll gap that fracture and it will keep it from, from, um, from healing. And that's why those people need to be in non-weight bearing is so that they're not using their plantar flexors. So you can allow that, that fracture fissure to basically to heal because otherwise it'll never heal because the, 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 the muscle, even just with the, the act of walking is, is getting bent quite a bit. Yeah. I think people kind of underestimate how violent of a pull or a tug that tendons and muscles have on bone and, um, how much of like contributes to almost like trying to bend the bone in some, some way for the long bones anyway. And that's exactly the, the type of stimulus. A lot of the, the bone needs to adapt and get stronger and become more dense and all those sorts of things. So yeah, very interesting. A conversation I never thought we'd have when I wrote out the template that we had for, for glute activation and, and glute myth and that sort of stuff. But oh, um, <laughs> yeah, I had a, okay. I, like this, this sort of stuff, like when I just, I just like geeking out about this stuff and happy to take these tangents. Um, but I guess summing up the conversation today, particularly around the glutes and glute myths and yep. that sort of stuff. Is there any other final takeaways or comments or maybe something we hadn't covered that you think the listeners would want to take away? No, I mean, I, you know, I don't, I don't think so. I, I think, you know, I think you kind of hit on it really well. I, I think that th this idea that, um, you, your, your, your glutes are asleep, um, or that, um, they're not, you're not activating them or using them enough. I, I think that I would encourage runners to, to really work on moving away from that narrative. Um, because the, the glutes just aren't, they, they are really important with running, but there certainly are other muscle groups that are, that are, that are far more important. Um, and, I mean, the best thing you can do when you go for a run, rather than worrying about what muscles you're activating, is just just go for a run and do that. And um, you know, and I, I think at the same time, I, I think it's important to keep in mind too that um, strengthening is is still really important from an overall musculoskeletal health standpoint, but also overall metabolic. And and we're starting to see the benefits for, of doing strengthening when it comes to even cognitive health as well as we, as we age. And so I would say to runners is still go in the gym. And, and when you go there, don't worry about doing a lot of body weight strengthening exercises, get in there and lift some heavy weights, um, and, uh, maybe replace one of your, at least one of your running days with that. Don't, don't necessarily think that you need to, you know, add that load on top of the running that you're already doing, but, um, you know, mix it up a little bit and get out and run and don't, don't worry about your glutes falling asleep. They'll, they'll be, they'll be okay. <laughs> They're, you're not going to forget them. And, and, it, and, and I, I will say too, is that like, it's okay to challenge what you've been thinking for a while, because that's one of the things that I've, for me in my career has been really helpful for me is to always think about like, okay, well, why do I think that? And now let's go see if I'm, if I need to maybe make some adjustments and try to I write down the three, three or four reasons why I, I, I hold a belief really strongly. And then I go and, and I, and I see if I can prove myself wrong. And, and I, and that's, you know, for me, I think that's really served me very well from a, just from a personal and professional growth standpoint. Yeah. I definitely respect those that I follow on social media that are happy to change over the years as they sort of learn more and more research comes out that they actually start to change their advice on things or change their narrative or certain stances on, on things and are very upfront and honest. Whereas um, some people like to double down on a particular narrative when in the face of new evidence that sort of counters that belief, they sort of um, actually go the opposite way instead of changing or like, you know, um, doing a bit of a thought experiment. Um, it tends to go the opposite way. So I, I like to gravitate my war myself towards people that do like are very upfront and honest, happy to change their opinions because that's all it is, just an opinion. And um, the work that you do is extremely um, beneficial to helping runners and helping mm -hmm. researchers and uh, health professionals and um, the the social medias that you're active on. I've got your Twitter, so um, rwilly2003, and I've got your Instagram, um, Montana Running Lab. Is there any other social media um tags or uh, websites or anything that you want me to include no, in no, the show I notes? That's, I think that's the main thing. I would, I would say that Instagram is probably where we're putting, you know, I'm putting most of my efforts there now. I think I just find the, the, the conversation to be, um, I, I enjoy it a lot more. I like the, I really like the visual part of, of Instagram. And so I, I, I've had a lot of fun, you know, making infographics and stuff like that in the last year. And um, it really helps me uh, figure out better ways to explain 
um, the literature or, or interpret the literature. And so I, I would say that, you know, that's that's kind of where I, I spend most of my time. I, I find myself even, you know, less and less um, on Twitter. But so, yeah, if you want to follow me on Twitter, you're more than happy to. And I, I definitely respond to, uh, to tweets on there um, as well. But yeah, those are the two social media platforms I'm on. Yeah. Well, a lot of the listeners will gravitate towards those accounts because this is what the the ethos of the the podcast is it's running smarter and the emerging research and the stuff that you talk about right in line with that sort of stuff. So um, everyone go check out, uh, particularly on Instagram. I follow you on Instagram as well. And like you say, the visuals are, are very impressive. Um, so thank you very much. Thank for all you do for the running community as well. The amount of research that you've done, the amount of publications I've read of your research has been tremendously helpful to my development and understanding of running injuries and injury prevention, that sort of stuff as well. So thanks from the academic side of things. And thanks a lot for coming on and sharing your thoughts on the podcast. Thanks, Brady. That's very kind. Uh, I mean, that's, uh, it's great. I love the fact that I, I, I don't know, I, I can't even believe people read papers that I write sometimes. <laughs> so it's a lot of fun that they, that they seem to inform uh, what people are doing. So um, that's great. Thank you very much. That's very kind. And that concludes another Run Smarter lesson. I hope you walk away from this episode feeling empowered and proud to be a Run Smarter scholar. Because when I think of runners like you who are listening, I think of runners who recognize the power of knowledge, who don't just learn but implement these lessons, who are done with repeating the same injury cycle over and over again, who want to take an educated, active role in their rehab, who are looking for evidence-based long-term solutions and will not accept problematic quick fixes. And last but not least, who serve a cause bigger than themselves and pass on the right information to other runners who need it. I look forward to bringing you another episode and helping you on your Run Smarter path.